Hello and welcome back to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we bring you some weird comics history sporadically on Tuesdays, usually. You can find us every Sunday on Chris and Reggie uh, at dot, uh, Chris and Reggie dot podbean dot com, or pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and in a letter from your future selves. Ooh. Now, this episode, we're going to talk about really a what might have been scenario, right, Chris? This Indeed, is, we are. This was an event pitch to DC Comics, uh, really somewhat in the wake of Crisis while Legends was going on, and we'll, we'll get more into that. But it was called Twilight of the Superheroes, and this is the pitch for that. We're going to talk about that by Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Alan Moore Not really as deep as we do on, like, say, Cosmic Treadmill But just getting us up to speed on what brought him in And where you know, where he was around 86, 87 yeah. um, Let's see, he was born November 18th, 1953 in Northampton, England He grew up in an impoverished area of blue-collar Northampton uh, called the Burroughs he was a voracious reader, and he did well enough in primary school to attend the more middle-class Northampton Grammar School, which uh, goes from ages 11 through 18. He would get kicked out for dealing LSD. Hey. <laughs> uh, he wrote poems and stories for literary zines throughout the 60s, uh, eventually having his own titled Embryo. After drifting about for a while, he uh, in 1973, he began dating and then would marry Northampton-born Phyllis Dixon, and he would go on to get a crummy office job working for the gas council at that point he decided there's got to be a better way now by this point he'd already done a couple of comic strips written and drawn by himself for the alternative press his first paid work was a comic in nme music magazine this was in uh, on october 21st 1978 this was an illustration of elvis costello he did a couple of strips for Sounds Music Magazine through the rest of the 1970s, submitted an unsolicited script for Judge Dredd to 2000 AD editor Alan Grant. Judge Dredd was already being written by John Wagner, but Grant recognized Moore's talent and asked him to do some work for Tharg's Future Shocks. This was a series of showcase strips that ran in 2000 AD as a testing ground for new talent. He ended up doing a lot of work for 2000 AD as well as for Marvel UK and Warrior. Uh, Warriors, where we get uh, V for Vendetta, the Marvel Man, Miracle Man, and the Bo Jeffries saga. Uh, now, DC editor Len Wein saw his 2000 AD work and in 1983 hired him to write Swamp Thing. He would introduce John Constantine, who will loom large during this discussion, which he won't, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he will. He will. Uh, he will that's right, he actually does. In, in Saga, he, he introduced him in Saga the Swamp Thing, number 37. Uh, June 1984, and the Swamp Thing run would last about four years from issue 20, January 84, to uh, 64, which was September 1987. Yeah, Moore would grow his DC output, uh, doing a two-part fill-in arc on Vigilante uh, for Marv Wolfman. This was issues 17 and 18, May through June 1985, uh, featured some uh, more uh, mature. Uh, oh, that's for uh, sure, uh, yeah. It yeah. Was... <laughs> Very, very dark story for sure. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that was a, that was already a kind of a gritty book. So this was yeah. even stepping it up a notch. Or stepping it down, whatever way you want to look at. It. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> now uh, he, along with Dave Gibbons, would collaborate on a Superman annual with the story uh, for the man who has everything. That appeared in Superman Annual Number 11 from 1985. Sticking with Superman, he would also write the final pre-crisis Superman story called "Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow." 
that appeared in both Superman number 423 and Action Comics number 400, I'm sorry, 583. And uh, that was September of 1986. In uh, 1986, Moore would again collaborate with Dave Gibbons and would craft the 12-part series Watchmen that you might have heard of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> after this, Moore could pretty much punch his own ticket. And notice we said pretty much. That's right. Uh, like, this, this is just a pitch after all. So the year is 1987. And DC was a year into their post-crisis status quo. Worlds lived, worlds died. Lots of stuff went down. We did a whole five-part series on Cosmic Treadmill about that. You can check it out, episodes 50 to 54. In the interim, Superman was given a new origin in John Byrne's Man of Steel. Batman's mythos was added to with Frank Miller and Dave Mazzucchelli's Year One. Wonder Woman received a new origin thanks to George Perez, and I think Len Wein was an assist on that. I think so. Uh, the Justice League has reformed now in this uh, new continuity. Hell, DC even had their first post-crisis event in Legends, 1986. The pitch we're about to read is for what could have, and depending on your millennium mileage, should have been 1987's year uh, event. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, before we get into the event itself, let's let's consider Moore's thoughts on mass crossover, since you know this was. Kind of in the relative infancy of mass crossovers, yep. uh, he does have some thoughts. As a matter of fact, you could say at this point there has been one smashing success. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Fact. Of all the events, of you know, Secret Wars did very well, but Crisis was huge, uh, and this yeah. is this is in the wake of that. Certainly. Now, in response to a letter written by Paul Levitz on the subject, Alan decided to share some thoughts of his own. To his mind, a perfect mass crossover would have sensible and logical reasons for crossing over with other titles so that fans would not feel cheated. Also, provide a springboard from which new series can be launched and old series can be revitalized. Also, have potential for commercial merchandising, you know, T-shirts, role-playing games, toys, posters, stuff like that. Uh, It would also uh, produce a central story idea that is simple, powerful, and resonant enough to bear translation to other media. So uh, animated series, movies, radio plays, whatever. Yeah. Uh, And also would require very hard thinking about whether they will generate more problems than they solve and how they will affect all participating books. Now, Moore cites the, as of this pitch, ongoing still Legends crossover as being a good example of a crossover done right. Uh, Although he hasn't read it, (laughs) he did familiarize himself with the notes. Uh, From that, he posited, It seems to be attempting to give a sort of resonant mythic context to the DC pantheon, while at the same time establishing a more vigorous social context for the established characters in terms of its storyline, thus drawing the whole DC continuity together into an interesting whole. Oh, you could say that's what Legends did, sure. It was uh, definitely... <laughs> and that a... was whole with a W, not a hole as in a... Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, not not <laughs> yeah. a sinking, uh, vac- yes. vacuous nothingness. Uh, anyway, Legends was a six-issue mini- event miniseries running from cover date November 1986 through May 1987. Written by John Ostrander and Len Wein with art by John Byrne. In it, Darkseid bets the Phantom Stranger he can find a way to turn humanity against the superheroes and through some glorious fear-mongering, he does just that. It's really almost a biblical-type tale, but it's a little <laughs> smaller scale than that. Anyway, uh, Moore cites Marvel's Secret Wars as a mass crossover done wrong, referring to it as banal, and suggests that it che- he cheapened both Marvel's continuity and credibility for short-term gains. To be fair, he does admit that he might be just a teensy bit biased against Marvel, possibly over some Marvel Man, Miracle Man stuff, which... 
we promise we are going to get to there is quite a script in the works folks i'll tell you what uh for more secret wars chatter check out weird comics history episode nine in our archives Yes, now uh, we talk about Crisis on Infinite Earths a lot of late, and we're going to talk a little bit more now. Uh, Moore states that Crisis was, quote, excellent, and suggests that Marvin George's motives were pure and their aim was true. I feel a butt coming here. But he <laughs> believes that the attempt to consolidate and rationalize the DC cosmos made things potentially more destabilizing and precarious. He claims that before such a to-do was officially made about continuity, readers had the ability to overlook certain inaccuracies, uh, simply attribute uh, mistakes to having occurred on a parallel Earth, say. Um, now, post-crisis, <laughs> that could no longer be done. And isn't that something I literally always say? You know, yes. to me, I, to me, it was always like, oh, okay, that happened on Earth, whatever. Fine, I'm fine yep, with it. Fine, I can. Yeah, let's let's put that in a drawer. We're good with it. Right. Uh, now he he also seems to be a bit upset that DC's pre-crisis continuity wasn't so much dead as it was, quote, never happened to begin with. Hey, now wait, didn't we all get called old men when we complained that we were losing our continuity post Flashpoint? Yeah, really, Alan. All those old Superman stories that don't matter anymore are still on your shelf, man. Yeah. Nobody took them from you. Go read your Wayne Boring. It's fine, bro. It's no big deal. <laughs> uh, anyway, Alan immediately points to the Legion of Superheroes Superboy discrepancy, which Paul Levitz was currently, at that time, attempting to sort out. This would ultimately be fixed by John Byrne introducing the Superboy of a pocket universe created by Legion foe the Time Trapper. Uh, because, of course, Legion of Superheroes is, exists. They've been inspired by Superboy, but in the post-crisis universe, there is no Superboy. Anyway, mm -hmm. suffice, suffice to say, he seems to have mixed feelings on the crisis, and he seems to be on the fence about playing the cards which he's been dealt, which makes him no different than most of DC's creative at this very moment. So, you know, yes. carry on. Now, the story pitch itself. Alan Moore sees this as 12 issues, 28 pages, no ads. He calls this the Watchmen deal. Uh, the title is inspired by Richard Wagner's opera, Gotterdammerung, which translates to Twilight of the Gods. The story will take place in the near future, uh, 20 to 30 years from now, or, or, or 1987, <laughs> the, year that, the year that Moore suggests is around 2000. Now, pla placing it in the near future allows for more p uh, potential cohesiveness with the current-day DC universe. If writers or editorial have any plans for sweeping changes to a character, it could be, to say, uh, test-driven during Twilight. Yeah. Uh, those changes could be seeded in a character's home book, suggesting that Twilight is, in fact, a possible future. Yeah, something similar will be done with character elements and characters wholesale for Mark Wade and Alex Ross's Kingdom Come uh, Elseworld series, really, 1990. Yep. Seven, uh, Justice Society of America Volume 3 plays with many elements of Kingdom Come and though relegates the actual event as having occurred on Earth-22 and several of those heroes just got folded into uh, or characters got folded into the DCU proper so mm -hmm. there it is now uh now, Moore uses the example of Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns as a story that might happen. He mentions that knowing how a character turns out, or might turn out, lends them a, quote, sort of poignance. In his introduction for the Dark Knight collection, Moore writes, One of the things that prevents superhero stories from ever attaining the status of true modern myths or legends is that they are open-ended. The story will feature a framing narrative as well as a core narrative. 
The framing bits would feature, quote, agents in the future who have managed to send a message back to agents in the present-day DC continuity, urging them to warn the superhero community of the terrible future that is possibly waiting for them and to avoid it at, at, it, and avoid it if at all possible. End quote. The framing sequence would also be written in such a way that it could be detachable from the whole. In accordance with his old perfect mass crossover thoughts, Moore seems quite taken with the idea of waiting for Twilight t-shirts, buttons, and posters. He just had to wait until the early 2000s, he would have been. That's right. Uh, the, the series can serve as a springboard for never-before-seen characters, citing Barbara Randall, who was eventually Barbara Kiesel's suggestion of there being a female Flash. He suggests he could introduce her in the Twilight as a longtime member of the Justice League, and eventually she could be added to the roster in the present day. Or not. Twilight might, might not happen. It, it, it's mm -hmm. a might-happen future, if at all. Now, does Twilight generate more problems than it solves? To which Moore offers the idea of the fluke. Now, he defines the fluke as being worlds where imaginary stories actually happened. Hmm. Now, if you've listened to uh, Weird Comics History Episode 22, the pre-crisis DC uh, multiverse, which is available in the archives, you'll know that DC would eventually decide to make some of those stories not so imaginary. Yeah, even ones that defy explanation why we would bother, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> no, the stories that Moore cites specifically, Superman Red, Superman Blue, which we now know occurred on Earth-162. <laughs> The death of Superman, not Superman 75, but the one with uh, you know Lex Luthor having him strapped to a table being bombarded oh, with okay. kryptonite rays. Right, right. Well, that's Earth-149. <laughs> he also mentions We know that now. He, that was not true when he wrote that, though. <laughs> it was not. say that, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, now, he also mentions the fluke being uh, usable as a, quote, convenient trash bin for not explicitly imaginary stories that would be difficult to fit in continuity, like Prez. Which is an Earth-72, by the way. <laughs> also, uh, Brother Power the Geek, and, uh, well, you know, he's got us there. Wow. Uh, finally, he also offers the Rainbow Batman. I mean, does that one really need an Earth? Wasn't he just trying to distract from Robin's broken arm? That's the only reason. I thought so. It, I, yeah. Why couldn't that be the normal continuity? Right? <laughs> uh, very strange. Anyway, so, the story. Here's the framing sequence part of it. The time is post-Legends. Several members of the Legion of Superheroes have volunteered for a reconnaissance mission exploring the time stream. That is the post-crisis time stream, the one with all those restrictions that weren't present in the Silver Age. Moore suggests these be Legionnaires that Paul Levitz isn't keen on keeping around for a bit, or ones he'd like change in one way or another. Rip Hunter's also investigating the time stream, because that's pretty much what he does, as well as any other characters in any other, from any other books that might have time travel problems They can get sorted out here. Certainly. Enter the Time Trapper, springing the ultimate time trap. He sets up a temporal fluke, there's that word again, in which time travel is rendered impossible. And thus, the Legionnaires are stuck in the year 2000. Now, this is, the, this is still the post-Legends continuity, which is to say the, quote, real DC universe. Mm. Uh, we mentioned Rip Hunter. He is, he is also trapped there. Um, now, the year 2000 is described by Moore as a world in which the superhero ideal seems to have gone badly awry with uh, events seeming to be leading to a terribly apocalyptic war between superheroes. Now, the Legionnaires and Rip are eventually able to make it back to their respective timelines, worlds, whatever. Uh, the kids going back to the far-flung future and Rip coming back to the present, which, of course, is 1987. And this is where the story will actually begin. Now, while Rip was in the year 2000, he met 
John Constantine. 2000 era John Constantine tells Rip that if he returns to 1987, he needs to enlist the aid of 1987 John Constantine to attempt to avert his awful future from coming to pass. Uh, Moore says that the future Constantine and Rip Hunter bits can cross over into carton books if it's not too inconvenient for creative teams. He compares this to stories in Thor, where in the Norse gods attempt to prevent Ragnarok. Now here's the world of Twilight, and this is the part I really find can really sink your teeth into. Yeah. Uh, by the year 2000, social institutions have fallen apart, and it's almost as though the superheroes have inherited the Earth. Not by design, they weren't seeking to take over. Uh, Moore describes them as being in the unwilling position as being a, new, a sort of new royalty. In lieu of government or civic authority, the heroes took to grouping in clans and looking after their set provinces. The houses of heroes divide the United States in what Moore calls a feudal barony system. There are eight houses in total. Now, before we get to them, however, uh, Moore is very clear that this is not a nuke-blighted future, like Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, or Ronin, because he feels that's becoming something of a cliché. And he's right. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the houses. We're going to start with the first one, the House of Steel. Now, this will either be set in the New York area or in the Arctic Circle. Uh, it was founded by Superman. He is married to Wonder Woman, who now goes by Superwoman. Together, they have a pair of children. Superboy is 18 years old, and he's... Kind of a jerk. Uh, Supergirl, we don't get an age for her. I would assume either similarly aged or maybe a little younger. Yeah. Uh, and she takes after her mother is what is what the uh, is what the pitch says. Uh, she's kind and gentle. So does that imply that Superman's a real jerk? <laughs> Perhaps. We'll, we'll just put a pin in that. Uh, then the House <laughs> of Thunder. This is the Marvel family based out of Los Angeles, founded by Captain Marvel, married to Mary Marvel. Mm. Mm. They are married more to, in Moore's words. Uh, form a bona fide clan in opposition to Superman. Uh, you know, obviously Billy Batson and Mary Marvel are brother and sister, but I'll tell you what, a lot of a lot of kings and queens were <laughs> relatives back in the long ago. So keep that uh, bloodline pure. Yeah, uh, Captain Marvel Jr. is also part of this house and is in the shadow of the big red cheese. He's also banging Mary Marvel, so there's that. Mary Marvel Jr. is another member, the daughter of Billy and Mary. Let's hope they weren't established as brother and sister by this <laughs> point, but maybe. Uh, Mary Marvel Jr. is fated to be part of an arranged marriage with Superboy, an attempt to join their two already immensely powerful houses. The final two members are Mr. Talkie Tony and Mr. Mind. Yeah, they don't really figure in, but we figure we mentioned them anyway. I, I figure he put that in because he knew that he, that would make me light up. That's about the Hooray! size of it. <laughs> now we've got the House of Titans that consists of what remains of the Teen Titans, based out of where else? Titans Tower. Uh, Moore claims not to remember where Titans Tower is, but we know that that's New York City. Uh, the House of Titans is considered a lesser house. Uh, I think all of them are considered lesser houses in comparison to the House of Steel and the House of that's Thunder. Marvel, yeah, the House of Thunder. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, led by Nightwing, who's acting like an even more horrible version of Batman, uh, perhaps due to the fact that Starfire was killed during the alien expulsion some years earlier. And by the way, there was an alien expulsion we'll yeah, be talking about. we'll talk today. about that a little later. <laughs> now, uh, more missing titans here. We've got Jericho, who's dead, uh, and Wonder Girl and Kid Flash have joined other clans, uh, the, which we'll get to in a bit. Uh, the Titans that remained, we have Hawk, now going by Warhawk, and he's a Rambo-like character that Nightwing points at like a weapon <laughs> and sends to break things. Uh, Cyborg, who has turned more machine than man, 
Changeling is now Chimera, and he's insane. Oh, right. Uh, Raven, who's still a sorceress, just older, and remained with the team simply out of loyalty. Well, since all she has to do is spend most of the time in her bedroom. Like in Azeroth or whatever. Yeah, what's, there's no, what's the difference? It's like, oh, is she part of the team? That's cool. She didn't really eat anything. Nope. Uh, here's, the, here's why I think he probably wanted to do these houses to begin with, was so that he could have... A house of mystery hey. Built around Baron Winters, Georgetown, Manson Baron Winters is for Marv Wolfman And Gene Colan's Night Force Which was recently collected in trade, folks mm-hmm. uh, Founded by an amalgamation of Baron Winters and Dead Man Winters had his mind burned out And Boston Brand took up permanent residence Features, as you may imagine Many supernatural characters Including Jason Blood, a.k.a. Etrican the Demon Spectre, Zatara Dr. Fate, Felix Faust a Faust, a reformed Felix Faust. Then uh, on the other side, we got the House of Secrets. Now that remains—that's uh, what remains of the supervillains. They're based out of Nevada, because there was a Justice League-headed purge on supervillains sometime back, and we will get there. The ones left include Lex Luthor, the Joker, Gorilla Grodd, Captain Cold, Catwoman, Kronos, Star Sapphire, and Doctor Savannah. So cool, all the uh, popular ones. Yeah. And Kronos. Uh. Uh, <laughs> now, although this house is run by villains, they are left to their own devices. And the villains actually do a pretty good job keeping their area of, you know, Nevada under control. Then there's the House of Justice. Uh, the remains of the Justice League based out of the JLA's old cavern headquarters. Probably Happy Harbor, right? I would assume Probably. so. Uh, who knows? Considered a lesser house, the lineup includes Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, Aqualad, who's now Aquaman, Wonder Girl, who is now Wonder Woman, since Diana vacated the name to become Superwoman, uh, The Flash, the Wally West one, which would have been the only one at the time, uh, Slipstream, the new female Flash, uh, more perverse, prefers the name Joni Quick, but I'm sure he would have let it go, it's kind of a moot point, since it didn't happen anyway, so there it is, <laughs> Captain Comet and Dr. Light, the heroic female one that was just created out of crisis, not the eventual rapist. Yes. Now, the House of Tomorrow. This is a house consisting of the victims of the Time Trapper's Flux. Uh, less strict in roster, uh, more appears to be having a ton of fun with these possibilities. Uh, it might include Rip Hunter, or maybe two or three Rip Hunters. Is, is, is. Uh, we'll, we could have some Legionnaires, we could have Tommy Tomorrow, Space Ranger, uh, perhaps an earlier version of the Time Trapper himself. Maybe Jonah Hex uh, returned from his apocalyptic future. And maybe even. Barry Allen. Whoa, maybe Dolphin? Oh, I wonder. Uh, there's the <laughs> House of Lanterns. It's being destroyed at the beginning of this story. Uh, formerly the house of, you guessed it, the Green Lantern Corps. Since their powers were, are endowed by little blue aliens, they have been banished from the Earth as part of the alien purge that we'll be talking about. Other characters jettisoned include Martian Manhunter, Hawkman, Hawkwoman, any other aliens more forgot about <laughs> Superman gets a pass because Krypton is gone And he's a United States citizen Which is good enough for me folks mm-hmm. The House of Lanterns now resides In one of the moons of Mars Moore's not sure if it's Phobos or Deimos Doesn't really matter no, I would, Who knows <laughs> No uh, the, yeah, it, could, it could be like it could be the moon of Pumpernickel for all sure. I uh, Now the the lanterns work alongside the Rons and Thanagarians in an attempt to restore their power on Earth, and somehow put a stop to the union between Mary Marvel Jr. and Superboy. Now the actual remaining lanterns include a reformed Sinestro, Carol Ferris, huh? Guy Gardner, 
Tomeri, and Saddam Yat. Uh, this is a prophesized lantern from uh, a more Tales of the Green Lantern Corps story, who was uh, eventually made canon during the Sinestro Corps War. So this kind of goes over his sometimes contention that he never intended those these characters of his that have become to, yeah canon, part of the mythos. Be, but, yeah. Mm, so he did have more written for them, but anyway. There are a bunch of unaffiliated heroes as well. There's John Constantine, and this is the same old John we know and love. Hasn't changed that much since 1987. Now shacked up with a woman who may or may not be a character called Fever from Moore's two-issue stint on Vigilante. Still a scammer, he has his hands in everything. Moore suggests that he get at his own ongoing series off the heels of Twilight. He hangs out at Sandy's place. This is a barrio bar, which serves as a meeting point for the characters during Twilight. It's being run by Sandra Knight, Better known to us as Phantom Lady. Hey. She's uh, kind of the den mother uh, to the Wanderers in. Uh, <clears throat> Moore says she has a Joan Collins sexuality to her. Uh, now, she might have her way with her guests from time to time. He did leave that open for uh, potential. <laughs> okay. uh, she serves as a caretaker to a fellow by the name of Daryl Dane, who might be better known to us as... Dollman! It's hmm. a tragic character who, after spending many years growing and shrinking, has really effed up his bones. They're so brittle that they would break if he returns to even normal size, so he's stuck standing at six inches. His body and mind begin adapting to being so tiny, and so he has somehow changed into a horrifying insect man. His brain adapted to its smaller size, which makes him non-human intelligent. The former phantom lady keeps him in a vivarium behind the bar. Got Uncle Sam. He's described as a hopeless derelict who hangs out at Sandy's place. And nobody even knows for sure if he's the real Uncle Sam or just some wino spouting cornball jingoistic reminiscences. Yeah, hey, who can blame him, really? I mean, he's just right? a tall, skinny guy with weird beard on. With, <laughs> and striped pants. Yeah. Uh, now, Moore seems really quite excited to write this character, uh, possibly just for the opportunity to take the piss out of him. Yeah, something about the hopeless derelict there. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. There was Blackhawk, uh, will eventually be re revealed to have a pair of prosthetic legs when they go missing, anyway. Lost his legs and all of his teammates during a mission He's been pretty twisted ever since So go figure Rents a room at Sandy's with some Nazi gold He hires young men at the bar And eventually it's revealed that he's putting together A new team of Blackhawks Moore writes that he's building up his squadron Of vicious Leather Queen Blackhawks Okay <laughs> and I'm, I was hoping that he was actually renting the room With Santo Gold That would have been nice <laughs> <laughs> But no, it was Nazi gold. <laughs> now, uh, I'm still waiting for Blood Circus. Yeah. Um, we got uh, Plastic Man. <sighs> He's a male prostitute, thanks to his elastic, elastic uh, consistency. Yeah. yeah. Right. He works for a seductive Winx escort agency run by a W. Winx. Uh, Woozy is now a roguishly half-likable but mostly disgusting old pimp. <laughs> Uh, he would sometimes, or this is Plastic Man, of course, he sometimes slips back into his Ill O'Brien persona. Uh, the skin at his lower back is saggy, uh, like a crepe. Really sounds disgusting. Uh, he will get a call from Kathy Kane. Uh, this, I don't know why we're mentioning this, but it was part of the pitch. Yeah. Uh, he will get a call by Kathy Kane, the Earth 2 Batwoman, for, quote, company. Wow. Poor, mm -hmm. poor thing. Uh, okay. <laughs> Congorilla. Congo Bill decided not to return to his aging human body, instead of remaining in the Golden Gorilla. He becomes a successful businessman, giving whoever is drawing the, this the opportunity to draw a Golden Gorilla wearing an expensive suit. 
I like it. He runs many criminal organizations. You know, the kids like gorillas on the covers, by the way. You <laughs> That's hear that? right. Runs many criminal organizations, likes brothels and gambling dens, works the protection racket, becoming the gorilla boss of Gotham City. Only problem is Congo Bill's now 90-year-old body refuses to die. Kong Gorilla cannot bring himself to kill his old body, so he just keeps it naked and shackled in his basement, waiting for it to die. It's getting dark, isn't it? Uh, we got uh, Green Arrow and Black Canary. They're now co-editors of a radical newspaper called Black Feathers. Uh, the logo for Black Feathers is a drawn bow with an arrow fletched in Black Feathers. Uh, Moore describes them as the nicest and most normal people in the series. Yeah, I mean, this this part seems totally legitimate, like this... Like, this could be a storyline right happen. now. Sure. <laughs> uh, the question. Freelance investigator, friend of Ollie and Dinah. Uh, at the start, he's investigating an impossible locked room murder mystery involving a midget and a six-foot-six-inch-tall call girl into heavy bondage. Okay. Right. Um, we can't forget about Batman. Uh, well, we kind of can, because he's just a rumor. He might have died years ago. Yeah, yeah, right. They, they're going to let <laughs> Batman be dead for the bit. Yeah. Uh, the Shadow has the same story as Batman. Uh, it'll eventually be revealed that he's working with Batman in ridding the Earth of the Houses of Heroes. Uh, we're assuming that this is the pulp hero of the Shadow, as more discusses putting together a team of immortals, including, along with the Shadow and Batman, Tarzan... And Doc Savage, as long as they're in public domain. He actually asks in the pitch, quote, are Tarzan and Doc Savage in the public domain yet? On end quote. There you go. So there it is. Uh, we've got the metal men. Mm -hmm. Platinum is a waitress in an auto sex bar. Uh, that's a what now? I don't know. Uh, is that a sex iron. with cars, automobiles? Is that? I wonder. All right. Hey, you're getting the oil change. Um, now, Ian is a, is a construction worker, and he's rusting at an alarming rate. Uh, Will Magnus is dead. Tin and Mercury have been destroyed, uh, wondering if he's still liquid at room temperatures. It's gotta be. <laughs> now, gold, gold is in hiding, because gold, the element, is quite valuable. Uh, now, lead has become radioactive, and nobody can come near him for six million years, which is kind of a bummer. Oh, poor lead. Uh, robot Man, Cliff Steele, is just a nice barrio dweller, friends with a few members of the House of Titans and the House of Justice. Yeah, I figure when he walks down the street, like the uh, like the produce stand will hand him an apple. Exactly. You know, hey, Mr. Steele, how you doing? <laughs> you know, stay in school. Stay, stay in school. Yeah. <laughs> now we also have uh, Adam Strange, trapped on Earth, but would likely rather to be hanging out on the House of Lanterns gang on Mars. Uh, he's a mole. Some other characters that will be hanging around are Challenges of the Unknown, the uh, Jay Garrick Flash. Roy Raymond, host of Impossible But True, Bobo the Detective Chimp, Johnny Quick, Black Condor, The Ray, and Sarge Steele. Yeah, so who'd have thunk when we were reading Mother Panic a few months ago that Impossible But True was a real thing? I know, I could, <laughs> wow, here we are. Now, and finally, the plot. Framing sequence, the end of 1987. In a New York City bar, John Constantine is drinking all by his lonesome, and he looks a bit perturbed. He's holding a crumpled letter in his hand. A beautiful blonde enters, beelines over to him, and asks if he's got a light. He looks at her as though he's about to answer, and that is where our flashback begins. All the way to the beginning of 1987. <laughs> uh, Constantine is visited by Rip Hunter. 
He's never met him, and he's surprised that his visitor appears to know just about everything there is to know about him, down to secrets that he's never shared with another soul. Now, Hunter's story is that he's been stranded in time at the House of Tomorrow in the world of Twilight. There, he met an older John Constantine who helped him escape back to the, quote, real DC Universe present. The specifics will not be made apparent to the reader. And then we move into the central plot. This is in the middle of 1995 or thereabouts. Society begins to break down. Supervillains see this as their opportunity to strike. And this really ticks off the Justice League, so they set out to remove all the supervillains permanently. And the plan is mostly effective. This leads to the superhero set being viewed as the only group in the world powerful enough to enact positive change. In in an attempt to cement their power, the heroes put together the first actual piece of what we would call legislation, and it's a plan to pass a law to outlaw aliens. The law passes and is enforced immediately, and this causes the first schism in the ranks of the heroes, with the titans beginning to splinter away from the community. The house system is discussed that we discussed earlier begins to take shape, with only the House of Secrets having any supervillains to survive the purge at the hands of the Justice League. It's now that the House of Lanterns is evicted, and they take up residence on Mars, where they would plan a secret invasion that we also mentioned a little bit about. Now we have the House and Steel of uh, the House of Steel and the House of Thunder uh, begin preparing to become family with the arranged marriage of Mary Marvel Jr. to Superboy. This is seen as an unprecedented move and one that is met with suspicion among the rest of the uh, superhero community or just the community at large. Uh, the house system was set up as a literal and figurative separation of powers to keep one house from overtaking the rest. Uh, with the two strongest houses combining, all bets are off. Now, together, the House of Steel Thunder could uh, exert control over the combined forces of the remaining houses. Uh, you mean the House of Thunder Steel, right? Hold Thunder on. Steel, <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, the House of Titans and the House of Justice are particularly con- concerned. Also, the House of Secrets, because the supervillains recall that great purge in 95 and fear a, re- a repeat. Uh, on Mars, the amalgamation, amalgamated House of Lanterns and Aliens conspire to put a stop to this. Their plan, while vague, appears to include Adam Strange's Zeta Beam, a whole lot of Thanagarians, Martians, and Green Lanterns. Okay. Now over at Sandy's Bar, it's just a regular day at old Sandy's. We got bums hanging out, Uncle Sam talking to himself, radicals Ollie and Dinah dropping in, sometimes for a political argument with the question. The question's latest case is a midget, or whatever we would be allowed to be called them, was witnessed heading up a flight of stairs with a very tall lady of the evening with a rough trade bar, at a rough trade bar. Seven hours later, after nobody emerged from the room, they broke down the door and found the little guy bound and gagged, and his neck was snapped, apparently with one clean blow. The room was locked, with the door being its only possible exit. The call girl was gone, and there was no murder weapon left at the scene. Now, back to, that, back to the houses of steel and thunder here. Uh, Supers, man and woman, are nervous about their son's penchant for sadism and sociopathy. Uh, he's nearly impossible to control. Uh, they also worry about finding a suitable mate for Supergirl. Captain Marvel Jr. seems to not want anything to do with her. I guess they can only arrange one non-consensual match. Yeah. Two would just be madness. It's, it's one one per uh, era. That's it. That's the law. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we can't forget that Captain Marvel Jr. is madly in love with Mary Marvel Sr. <laughs> and if you recall, they've been banging behind the Big Red Cheese's Big Red Back. Oh, right. Uh, 
Now, it's been getting difficult, though, because the captain's been acting odd lately. Like he no longer chats with uh, Talky Tawny, for instance. He's uh, also making more, quote, marital demands of, marry, of Mary. We know what that uh, means, yeah. We do. <laughs> All of the Marvels are acting odd, actually, because they're operating out of two sets of bodies, one of which never ages. Uh, Mary and Junior are dealing a bit better than Cap. They've just chosen never to return to their human form, while Billy will still Shazam back and forth. Um, also, Mary Jr. doesn't want to marry Superboy, so that's also a problem. Yeah, and that part was sort of could sense that would be the case. These arranged marriages are never, you know, that's why they have to be arranged, right? True. Now, all throughout, the uh, older Constantine meets with various characters we mentioned earlier, and he's concocting a plan, uh, man manipulating people because he's Constantine and that's what he does, and he's also trying to take advantage uh, of and fanning the flames of the apparent stress between these houses. In the lesser houses, as the Union of Steel and Thunder looms closer, Nightwing of the Titans suggests joining forces with the House of Justice and the House of Secrets to stand together. The Houses of Mystery and Tomorrow, they're not interested in none of that anyway. A plan comes together to launch an attack on the Houses of Steel and Thunder, perhaps even on the wedding day itself. If they can take out those two large houses, their regions can be divided among the uneasy alliance of the lesser houses. Now, the houses aren't the only groups looking to expand their number. Uh, Black Hawk, of course, he's still looking for his leather queen whatever. Uh, <laughs> he's trying to grow his order. Uh, now, there's also the Elite Council of Shadow, which is Batman and the public domain outsiders from earlier, basically. Uh, they're also planning an attack. Uh, Constantine makes contact with these two groups, uh, but he might just be playing them because, you know, this still is Constantine. Right. Uh, he also makes contact with Adam Strange and learns of the Im impending alien invasion. He also hangs out at Black Feather's offices and chats up Ollie, Dinah, and sometimes the question. Where isn't John Constantine? That's the real question. That's the question. Uh, in fact, he see John seems to be the business of collecting information and trust. He brushes up against just about every non-steel or thunder-themed group at this point and promises them all his undivided aid. When meeting with the House of Tomorrow, he meets Rip Hunter. When John learns of the proposed Titans Justice Secrets attack during the wedding of Superboy and Mary Jr., he runs and reports it to Captain Marvel himself. He also asks Captain Marvel that should this attack go down, the House of Thunder shouldn't do anything to aid the House of Steel. Captain Marvel's incredulous until Constantine tells him he shouldn't be. And what's more, he knows why he shouldn't be. Mm. Constantine lights a cigarette with a match, which causes Captain Marvel to flinch. Both men smile, and Cap agrees to go along with John's plan. Hmm, something seems amiss. Uh, now, so, as it stands, with Constantine pulling the strings, we've got the House of Justice and House of Titans planning to attack during the wedding of Superboy and Mary Jr. Captain Marvel has agreed not to defend his supposed allies. Batman and the public domain outsiders will stand down and not attack. Uh, John shares his plan with them, and the, and the reader knows that, but we just don't know what the plan actually is. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the House of Lanterns slash Aliens will attack after the Titans' injustice attack. Uh, John's also been hanging around the barrio, looking for the metal man Gold and some crippled old man. He actually manages to find them both. Uh, he tricks Gold and melts him down. That sucks. That's nice. Uh, <laughs> the uh, crippled old man that he finds is actually the new god Metron. He'd been banished to Earth at some point for being too curious. Uh, <laughs> now, John John really just wants the Mobius chair. we got to make that plain. Yeah. Um, 
It's at this point in the treatment that Alan Moore insists that this won't just be a John Constantine story, uh, which uh, could have fooled us. Yeah, really. It seems like he's sort of hinging the whole thing, but that's okay. Here we are now at the wedding day, and the Titans, Justice, and Secret Houses attack. Superwoman kills Wonder Woman, which is to say Diana kills Donna Troy. Captain Adam kills Superwoman. Superboy is killed, and so are most of the Titans, Justice League, and villains. Captain Marvel stands back, allowing this all to go down, and is unharmed. Mary Marvel Sr. and Captain Marvel Jr. flee into space, and Supergirl goes with them. When the dust settles, the Houses of Thunder and Steel are down to just two men. Captain Marvel, who is mentioned, is unharmed, and a beaten and battered Superman. Now, at this point, we got them back-to-back, back and the, Z- the Zeta Beam hits, and our alien invasion commences. They first take out the few survivors from the Houses of Titans, Justice, and Secrets. Then they set their sights on Superman and Captain Marvel. Oh, make that just Superman. Mm. Uh, if you haven't figured it out by now, uh, Captain Marvel isn't actually Captain Marvel. Huh? In fact, he's been dead the whole time. Oh, 20 years ago to this very day. (laughs) Now, you see, Billy Batson had some problems. He would, like we mentioned, he still returned to his human child body from time to time, which is a body that didn't age, that housed a brain that unfortunately did. And with that came certain needs. Um, His child body was that of a prepubescent, uh and so he wasn't capable of normal sex. Uh But he still had needs. And so, he began experimenting. Oh, Alan, why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) We're not done yet. (laughs) No. Since since he wasn't capable of normal sex, he began experimenting with bizarre S&M variations. Why, Alan, why? He went to a particular bar on a particular night and happened to just meet the right particular call girl to suit his fantasies. A very tall one. They went up a flight of stairs to a room and locked the door behind them. Billy agreed to be tied up and, most importantly, gagged. Mm. At this point, the call girl was revealed to be, in actuality, John Jones, the manhunter from Mars. Whoa. Since Billy was gagged, he couldn't shout Shazam, and so he was easy pickings for one well-placed chop to the throat by Mr. Jones. And I would like to point out that in the Golden Age, that literally was the way they captured Shazam every time. Every time. Was to, was <laughs> to put a gag on Billy Batson. That was a, the gag on Billy Batson was his kryptonite. That was the only yep. thing. Now, with Billy dead, John walks out through the wall causing detectives and the question to a whole lot of confusion. Ever since that night, the Martian Mantender has been standing in for Captain Marvel. Now back to the main story. Superman realizes that he's been set up, and he kills the Martian Manhunter with his heat vision. From here, he tears his way through the hordes of aliens and lanterns before coming face-to-face with Sodom Yat, who beats him to death. Oh. Uh, yes. Uh, now, the alien coalition is successful and will now rule over Earth, which might not have been entirely what Mr. Constantine was hoping for. And so, the aliens find themselves attacked by Batman and his public domain outsiders. They're, they're all wearing this thin golden armor, presumably forged out of the old metal man gold. This renders the Green Lanterns useless because they still have that yellow impurity thing, so their rigs mm-hmm. don't work on yellow. At this point, the aliens are concerned, briefly, because there's a universe full of aliens who wouldn't have much of a problem pouring in to help out their allies. 
Enter the Mobius chair. It turns out that Constantine used the Mobius chair to visit Quard in the antimatter universe to do some wheeling and dealing. He promised them boom tube, te boom tube technology, which he learned from Metron in exchange for Earth's safety. And so, while the Thanagarians, Ranians, Mar Martians, all damn aliens continue to pour in, they are met by an insurmountable horde of Quardian weaponeers. The aliens skedaddle, and the weaponeers head back into the antimatter universe, satisfied with their new boom tube tech. Into the post-war, the only heroes that remain on Earth are Batman and his gang, none of whom with metahuman powers, uh, many of whom also remove their masks and go public. Uh, the promise is made that the days of a super dictatorship are over. Twilight ends with John Constantine looking at his utopia that he helped put together. Back in 1987, this, this, he said this was not a John Constantine story, right? Is that what he said? Okay. Yeah, this is yeah, this is a uh, Shazam story. All right. Yeah. <laughs> now, back in 1987, much of this story was what older John told Rip Hunter before sending him back, but not all of it. Somewhere during the proceedings, we'll pop back to 1987, and John will be told that if he isn't careful, this is the John, uh, the younger John, of course, mm. he'll be told that if he isn't careful, one day he'll run into somebody craftier than he is and get into a whole mess of trouble. Now, Constantine, being the headstrong fellow that he is, balks at the idea, because he ain't nobody smarter than he is out there. Mm -hmm. We learned that in Constantine's tour of the present-day DC Universe, not everybody heeds his warnings about the twilight future that might be coming. Now, one bit that Rip shares with the younger John is that one night he'll meet the love of his life. She's going to approach him at the bar and ask for a light. Uh, he also gives him a letter, one that mustn't be read until he's warned everyone. John being John, he reads it. Of course. And, it's, uh, and it winds up that it's from his older self. Elder John apologizes and tells younger John that the Twilight Future will happen regardless of the warnings he gives, and perhaps even because of them. Hey. The only consolation is that John will meet the love of his life, which at this point we learn was kind of the whole point of this entire story. Older John wanted younger John to meet the love to of his life. To meet love, yeah. So he destroyed all the superheroes. He destroyed the entire universe <laughs> to facilitate this. Right. Uh, you might imagine young John is ticked. Not so much because he feels lied to, but because he was finally outsmarted by his older, craftier oh, self. Who else can get a John Constantine but another John Constantine? I heard he also. Mm -hmm. I heard he was also felt uh, annoyed because he was told this wouldn't be a John Constantine story. <laughs> and clearly, yeah. Anyway, uh, we go back to the opening pages. John is drinking alone with a crumpled letter in his hand. Enter the love of his life. She asks him if he's got a light. They lock eyes. John blinks twice and tells her that he doesn't smoke. The woman lingers for a moment before leaving, and the story ends with John Constantine sitting alone, bawling his eyes out. Uh, he, he still wins by losing, or, or loses by winning, I don't right. know. So, we got a whole story here. 12 yeah. issues, 28 pages a pop. That's that's a pretty decent thing by, there. By Alan Moore, who, like we yeah. know by then, already would have been, you know, pretty money. Huge, yeah. yeah. So, what the hell happened? Well, DC passed. Or, Moore's relationship with DC soured. Maybe over the Watchmen royalties. Maybe both. Hell, maybe neither. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on who you ask, when you ask. Uh, either way, for quite a while, DC claimed ownership of the pitch, uh, whether they felt it would stop him from publishing it elsewhere or just that they're, it's just their way of controlling where and how this proposal is shown, we don't know. 
Uh, this pitch has been uploaded and removed from the internet a whole lot over the past couple of decades, uh, though nowadays it is incredibly easy to find. Um, but you never know, DC could get that wild hair again and start sending out angry letters to webmasters any day. Maybe this very podcast will spur that <laughs> yes, kind of we'll a, our, an action, so uh, we apologize if that's what happens. <laughs> but how did this originally get out to the world? What was the leak? Well, during the mid-1990s, this piece leaked onto what passed for the internet. This was mainly BBS's and Usenet. The pitch made the rounds, and though many questioned its validity, a fan, uh, a fan named Michael Grabois managed to get it into the hands of some pros and was able to get their thoughts on whether or not this was a lost more classic. He po- posted the following reactions on July 2nd, 1995. Kurt Busiek said, Based on the internet discussions of the portrayal, it sure sounds like the one I've read, which is quite traceably more. Warren Ellis says, Well, it has Moore's voice. Fascinating document. <laughs> and I, I swear I was expecting to say he never heard of Alan yeah, Moore, because yeah. every time we get a question, somebody questioning Warren Ellis, he goes, I, I don't know who that is. Exactly. Well, any name. Yeah, he always, but yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, Neil Gaiman said, Well, your description sounds exactly like the description of Twilight I got from Alan one afternoon in 1986, so I'd assume it's the same thing. Uh, Dave Gibbon says, I've had a look at the Twilight file and have no hesitation in declaring it the real McCoy. I can't recall if I ever actually read it way back then or if Alan told me about it, which amounts to the same thing content-wise, in one of our three-hour phone calls. I vividly remember the bit with the doll man in the vivarium. Uh, From an issue of Overstreet Fan, a letter from a a comic shop owner read, An interesting story about Twilight. I first discovered it four or five years ago when I was a comics retailer. We would occasionally have comic creators do signings in our store, and on one occasion the group we hosted included a Malibu editor. This was before Marvel purchased and gutted it. The editor had with him a copy of the proposal he was supposed to read and evaluate on the trip. Seems it was Alan Moore's idea for a Watchmen-style story involving the future of DC's superheroes. DC, for one reason or another, was not going to be publishing it, and so it had found its way to Malibu. The editor was to examine the proposal and see if it could be made into to work with Malibu's superheroes. I don't remember if this was before or after Ultraverse. Replacing DCs, just like Alan had created the Watchmen characters, as replacements when DC wouldn't let him use the Charlton characters for Watchmen. Uh, I had a chance to flip through it, and it is indeed the same document I found on the internet. Not that anyone would doubt its authenticity after Neil Gaiman confirmed it. I remember some of the text verbatim. What I can't remember is why I didn't make a mad dash for the nearest Xerox machine. Mm-hmm. And that's Twilight of the Superheroes. That is all we all that has to be said. But what <laughs> more do we have to say on Twilight of the Superheroes? This yes. Is, this is something uh, Chris told me about this. Uh, pretty when we first ever really met, I think we it was one yeah, of the like first time. Yeah, like a year topics, and a half ago. Yeah. And I didn't really, I didn't, I think I'd know a little bit about it, but I hadn't read it until that time. Uh, and now re- reading it then, and now picking through it more closely here, uh, I mean, let's just say outright, it would have made a ton of money. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, this this was the ripe time. There was there was no backlash at this time against grim and gritty. Uh, yeah. You know, rapey sex heroes stuff. You know, <laughs> heroes getting that was still sort of new in 1987. There was a novelty to it. Yeah. So there's no. This would have sold like gangbusters. However, and I have to think if DC editorial thought the same thing, it's kind of strange to write a story, especially one that's happening in 13 years, right? Theoretically, the way he wanted to do it yeah. in 2000, mm-hmm. 
where you're you're killing off ninety percent of your universe, you know everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's one thing to do a crisis, wipe it away, and whoa, but then we snapped it back. Like, but this looked like it was very final. This this, I mean, really, this strikes me as a Kingdom Come and Elseworlds story. Yeah. I don't see, and I know he he pitches it that way, but you know, it would have been hard for people to reconcile the, this with continuity. I think. What, what do you think about it? I'm thinking I'd never be able to look at Captain Marvel the same again. Probably not. <laughs> not I, I, Plastic I mean, Man either, I don't think. That's right. <laughs> I just, because uh, it seems to be very cruel to certain characters. And, uh, you know, even though this was a maybe story, it's kind of like, you know, if you're if you're watching like a court show and like a, a, a lawyer asks a witness like when he stopped raping his wife. Right. And then recalls the question immediately. Yeah, I mean, course. the jury still heard the question. You, you put you put that nugget out there. Yeah, yeah that, the, the jury damage. still heard it. Whether it's a lie or not doesn't matter. Whether it never happened doesn't matter. It's like you're always going to equate Billy Batson with a gag in his mouth because he yeah. has certain needs. It really comes down to his S&M needs. It's, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, it seems uh, like we were saying here. I mean, Grim and Gritty was the, was the flavor of the day, but this seems like it it went to eleven. You know, this was well <laughs> in a way. Hardcore. Moore had to outdo himself, right? He's the architect. He was com- of he the was Grim chasing himself, yeah. Uh, and and considering what did come out in eighty seven or eighty eight, Killing Joke, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't he didn't he went pretty far. You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> I think this had sort of become his thing. And it's funny when you think now, in hindsight, the long term, the kind of comics he'd be writing by the end of the 90s, which were much more lighthearted, almost like insipid in some ways. But I'm sure. talking about the top 10, the Tom top Strong. 10, yeah, the ABC stuff, yeah. And, and even and even to some extent, the League of Extraordinaries of Gentlemen is sort of fun. And it's, you know, it's, it's dark, but not like cruel the way this is. And I yeah. agree with what you're saying. that The handling of some characters, this endless preponderance on Superman being like a di- dictatorial jerk. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that's that's our take now. I think I think we're looking at it with a mind now when we have had a two decades or more of diminishing returns of stories like this. Sure, Whereas sure. in 1987, it would have been fresh. And one thing I do think is funny, when we went over the rules for a good crossover, is that Millennium breaks almost every one of those rules in the beginning. Like, you know what I mean? It has no reason to happen. It's not easy for you. It doesn't create any more good, you know, stories. It doesn't. It doesn't get merchandised. It doesn't do, it didn't do any of those things. Uh, and it's, it's funny. This one seems much better crafted. And just on the face of being an Alan Moore idea, I would have loved to see something come out of it. But I just cannot see this becoming canon. But then again. No. I've said that before, and look what, and look what's canon now, Chris. So <laughs> things you never thought would be canon are now part of the uh, universe. So, uh, but I, I'm really glad to have read it, and it sort of is like, you know, again, what might have been if mm-hmm. we had gone left instead of right. If you know the uh, bad blood had never happened between Alan Moore and DC, he could have just become one of their stable of writers uh, sure. through the '90s. And I, and it's as we've come to find out, going through. Uh, comics history, more than people think, he was the guy that would play ball. Uh, Absolutely. And it would have been interesting to see how he would treat the death of Superman, uh, you know, Emerald Twilight, all the things in DC Universe going through the 90s. But uh, any more uh, thoughts about it? Um, I, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, familiar enough with the uh, Malibu universe to say whether or not that I could see this 
being slid in there. I, I think with any superhero universe, you have those certain ar- archetypes. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm pretty sure you could have found a stand-in for Superman. I don't know if you could have found a a Billy Batson who's into weird stuff, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure you could have made it work. Or you, they could have introduced a character a couple months before this came out and then used them as a proxy. Uh-huh. Um, and I do, I'm, I'm also not familiar enough with Moore's work through, uh, like, I've, I've got a lot of his image work, but I haven't read through all of it. So I don't know if he's actually used some of these, uh, maybe he used some of these ideas in his own work. I, I couldn't say. Supreme. Supreme, uh, yeah, maybe even Youngblood, who knows? Yeah, he didn't use them in uh, ABC that I know of. I did read a lot of that, but I have, you're right. Mm. So I feel like some of these ideas did kind of manifest in some future events. Kingdom mm-hmm. Come seems to be very reminiscent That seems of to be it. the closest, yeah. But at the same time, uh, it's not so close that I would call it a crib, you know what I mean? You could have the no, same, no, you, not ha- having the idea that eventually superheroes inherit the Earth is not... Really, brand new thing, you know what I mean? That's no, sort of the not breaking any ground. That's one extension of you know what could happen in that kind of a world. Uh, anyway, it is definitely fascinating to think about uh, what could have been. Personally, I think that this would have worked okay as truly a Watchmen thing, just writing a brand new universe, you know, an, an a, sure. a, uh, analog universe to this or to comics in general. Uh, Astro City, that kind of a universe, you know what I mean? Where it's mm-hmm. like a lot of call outs, there are a lot of analogs to. Heroes DC and Marvel, but yeah. but we let we they let him go on it, and you know he gets to tell his stories. But anyway, that will never happen. Now, as a matter of fact, I'd say now we're probably closest to actually seeing a Billy Batson uh, doing have S and M problems. So uh, we we are living in that future. Little, little even though he didn't write the story, we eventually did manifest the future of Twilight of the Superheroes. We need to go back exactly. Go take us back to 1987, please. Stop them, Stop this from happening. Uh, but anyway, um, if you have any thoughts on this matter, on Alan Moore, on Twilight of the Superheroes, even if you have a pitch for DC, you want to send it to us because you think that we have some sort of connections, which we don't, uh, you can write we to don't? us. <laughs> Sorry, we can write to us at <laughs> weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history or on Twitter at cosmicteamill. And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Catch our weekly writings at WeirdScienceDCComics.com and Chris's daily writings at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, where he will reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week, uh, going on now 560-something days in a row. And Zeroing uh, in on 600, yeah. <laughs> this is, this is uh, quite, quite a thing. It's quite an amazing resource. I implore everyone to look at it. A lot of times you can... Connected to, uh, or you know, episodes of Cosmic Treadmill or Weird Comics sure. History, although not in this case because this was a comic that was never published to everybody. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, there's also that uh, half-assed blog Image Bank <laughs> at WeirdComicsHistory.blogspot.com. Well, does it have anything more than the uh, monitor appearances? It's got a few things, but the latest is still that monitor appearance thing. Okay. Uh, I could just publish a blank one. And say it's Twilight of the Superheroes. There you go. That it's all the, the prelim art for, yeah. for uh, Twilight take a, of the Superheroes. Take Super a picture Heroes. of some beard hair on a piece of typing paper and say, here it is. <laughs> here it is. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's cool, though. Let's go check it out. It's got good pictures, and uh, I will say no more about it because I don't have much more to say about it at the moment. There's but it's not good, much more to say. Good <laughs> repository of uh, stuff. 
But uh, is that, if that's all we got for him this week, Chris, I think I'm going to tell everyone to keep it weird historically. Forever. Niggas in my faction don't like asking questions. Strictly gun testing, coke measuring, giving pleasure in the Benzito, hitting fannies, spending chips at Manny's. Hope you creeps got receipts. My peeps get dirty like cleats. Run up in your crib, wrap you in your polo sheets. Six up in your wig piece, nigga deceased. Why? May you rest in peace with my sicker more style. More sicker than yours. 4-4 four, four and 54 draws. As my pilot, stares my lair. Yes, my dear, shit's official. Only the feds I fear. Here's a tissue. Stop your blood clot crying. The kids, the dog, everybody dying. No lying. So don't you get suspicious. I'm big, dangerous. You're just a little vicious. As I leave my competition. Respirator style, climb the ladder to success, escalator style. Hold y'all, breath I told y'all, death controls y'all, big don't fold y'all. Uh, I spit phrases that'll thrill you, you're nobody till somebody kills you. You're nobody.